Lord Jesus, we come to you this first Sunday in Lent. We are thankful for this opportunity to gather together. We pray your blessing upon this meditation on the words of your scripture. We pray that you would be at work in all of our hearts and that the words of, our, of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. You may be seated. So a few years ago, the author Jen Pollock Michelle wrote an essay called Move Over Sex and Drugs. Ease is the new vice. It's a really striking essay because in it she documents what she describes as a troubling fatigue with bodily living. She canvasses the so-called sex recession among young adults and the embrace of AI and total digital immersion. And she argues that it seems like we're quickly losing sight of what it means to be creatures composed of body and soul. There's this kind of daily grind of embodiments, the regimens that we endure to take care of our bodies, the chores that we have to do to keep our spaces clean and functional, embodied presence with other people and in our communities. These are all, it seems, feeling increasingly toilsome to a broad swath of folks in our society. She doesn't say this, but what it sounds to me like in this essay is that there's a kind of slow drift towards the dematerialization of our society. She quotes this one New York Times piece that suggests that 40% of millennials find breakfast cereal to be an inconvenient choice for breakfast. Because you gotta clean up after yourself, right? I was like, I was like, what could be less? And I was like, maybe it's a cereal bar. It's like, cause you gotta, like with cereal, you gotta put the box up and the milk back and you clean the bowl and the spoon. That's like too much. So ease rather than pleasure is the thing that we're increasingly entranced by, is what she says. Lent cuts sharply against the grain of our societal impatience with embodiment. In Lent, we are embracing all of these bodily disciplines, which remind us of the inescapable fact of our physicality. We're saying no to the allure of food, the comfort of food through fasting. We're saying no to spending and consumerism through almsgiving. We're saying no to noise in the attention economy by rejecting entertainments and, the embrace, and through the embrace of silence and prayer and contemplation, we're stilling our souls and saying yes to Jesus. The Christian claim is that all of this bodily discipline is inherently rehumanizing. Lent rehumanizes us by reminding us that we not only have bodies, but that we are our bodies. As human beings, we are inescapably, as Mark Cortez puts it, embodied souls and insouled bodies. And therefore, the way that the grace of God gets into our souls in order to transform us is as much through our bodies as it is through our minds. It is in the formation of our bodies as much as, as, as it is the information which we get into our minds. Formation as much as information. Through these disciplines, we're cutting out all of these things that have become supports and crutches for us during the year, and we're taking on material embodied practices that help us turn to Christ. And through the rejection of ease, through the discomfort we're embracing, we're saying, Jesus, we want you. Come and fill this gaping abyss within our hearts with your presence, with your power. Renew us. Save us. Restore us. Make us new. We're turning to you again. The author Philip Yancey, you might never have heard of. Anybody heard of Philip Yancey? Let me get a show here. Oh, okay. Actually, a lot of you have heard of Philip Yancey. Okay. I just haven't, I haven't heard from him in a while, and I was like, I don't know who knows this guy anymore. He is really distinctive looking. He's like Bob Ross. He's got the great afro. It's amazing. 
But in his heyday, he would travel across the world and he'd speak. And he was noticing this really interesting thing that would happen. As he was reflecting on what he was seeing as he was traveling, he said, As I travel, I've observed a pattern, a strange historical phenomenon of God moving geographically from the Middle East to Europe, to North America, and now to the developing world. My theory is this. God goes where he's wanted. My friends, this is actually what Lent is about. We're saying to God, we've been distracted, we've been numbed out, we've been anesthetized by all of this consumption, by all of this ease. We are unfeeling and unhearing and heedless of your voice, and we don't want to be. We want you. We don't want alcohol. We don't want meat. We don't want chocolate. We don't want TV. We don't want social media. Whatever else it is that you've given up for this Lent, these things are all fine. They are a good part of God's creation, and they're meant to be enjoyed by his people within measure. But in Lent, we confess that we've come to need these things too much. They've become crutches and consolations for us when we should have been turning to the true source of every good gift. And so in Lent, we say we don't want the things, we don't want the blessings, we don't want the experiences, we want the source. We want you, Jesus. Without your presence, Psalm 104 says, we shrivel up and die. Your church shrivels up and dies. Your creation shrivels up and dies. And so Lent, as sober and as uncomfortable as it is, is also profoundly exciting. Because we're making this fresh start in our commitment to a life of repentance. Our lives in Lent crackle with the possibility of renewal and presence. Every year during Lent, the Orthodox monks read this book called The Divine Ladder by a 7th century monk named John Climacus. His, actually, his name is just actually John. Climacus means ladder, right? So it's like he's John the ladder, okay? But he's just kind of known after this book. Climacus, by the way, he was an abbot in this very important monastery on Mount Sinai, like the same Mount Sinai on which God shows up in the fire and the smoke to Moses, right? It's like a thin place on earth if ever there's been one. And this book is sort of mind-blowing in so many ways, but one of my favorite things that Climacus says in it is this, repentance is the daughter of hope and the refusal to despair. Repentance is the daughter of hope and the refusal to despair. I love that quote on so many levels, but I think this is the main reason. It makes it clear that being comfortable and well-adjusted and acquiesced to the status quo of the world we live in is actually despair. It doesn't feel like despair, but it is. It makes it clear that being comfortable with the callousness of our own hearts and our own unfeelingness and our own moral compromises and being reconciled to our own weak-willedness is actually despair. It doesn't feel like it, but it is. These are the voices of atheism within us that tell us that Jesus Christ is really not raised from the dead. So we may as well eat, drink, and be merry because tomorrow we die. These are the voices that tell us that sin, death, and the devil haven't really been defeated. They are too powerful and they can't really be resisted, so why even try? These are the voices that tell us that the road is too hard and we are too weak and we are too tired to be roused to the noble calling that we have been given in Jesus Christ. These are the voices that tell us to shrink back from embracing the immense honor that we have been given as the people of God. Lent is exciting because we're making a fresh start to lives of repentance. In Lent, we are taking an ice axe to the frozenness of our own hearts. It's a sledgehammer to the subtle and the silent despair that's encased our hearts in concrete and made it impossible to hear the voice of God. In the reading 
from Mark's gospel today, we see Jesus driven into the wilderness by the Holy Spirit to be tempted by the devil. In his baptism, he's declared before everyone watching to be the beloved Son of God. The eternal second person of the Trinity assumes human flesh for our sake. He becomes like us in every way that he might heal every part of our humanity. And he demonstrates this commitment to our healing by embracing baptism for our sake, that we might have the power that his baptism brings. And then he's driven out into the wilderness. He's tempted by Satan, subjected to all the temptations that we suffer in this life. Mark doesn't go into detail about the ways that Jesus is tempted in the way that Matthew and Luke do. But he thinks it's important for us to know that Jesus is indeed tempted. He's tested in order to see if he will remain resolute in his desire to save us, alone, surrounded by frightening wild places and wild animals. Where you and I would fail, Jesus succeeds. He takes on our humanity and he is faithful to the Lord in our humanity. There is so much good news today, church. There is so much good news in this call to repentance. When Jesus says, repent and believe the good news, the kingdom of God is near, there is so much good news in that. Here's the first and most important bit of good news. Jesus is more committed to your salvation than you are. We are weak-willed. We're half-hearted. We're internally divided. Jesus is not. Jesus refuses the temptation of the devil and remains faithful to the mission entrusted to him by the Father to save you and me. Jesus sets his face like flint towards Jerusalem, neither deviating to the right nor the left on his way to the cross because of his burning love to deliver all of us from every evil and every sin that besets us and keeps us from everything we were made for. And when Jesus says, repent and believe the good news, that's what he's talking about. Are you here today burning with an unholy passion, with resentment, or sinking under anxiety and discouragement? There's help on the way. Believe it, because Jesus did not turn aside to temptation, because his will for your salvation is ironclad. Here's what that word repentance actually means. It doesn't mean turn or burn. It doesn't mean feel real bad and ashamed of what you've done and left undone. It means come to your senses and rethink reality from the ground up around the incarnation of the Son of God in Jesus Christ. Turn around and embrace the Father in heaven who is already running to meet you in Jesus, just as the Father embraces the prodigal son in Luke 15. That's the whole point of the story. It's not about the son's repentance. It's about the Father who is already running to meet the son as he repents. There is so much good news in this call to repent. Not only is there this good news that Jesus is immovable and unshakable in his desire to save you, as if that were not enough, there is the immensity of the forgiveness which we have been given in our baptism. Y'all, I feel like I've been talking about baptism a lot recently, like the last few months. But I promise you, it's not, it's not on purpose. Like, it's literally all the Bible passages keep throwing up baptism. So I have to keep talking about it. But listen, it's important. It matters. We have all of this forgiveness, this immeasurable forgiveness that is extended to us in baptism. We've been given grace upon grace, an infinite well of grace to cover our many sins and failures, our commissions and our omissions. Through baptism, we are incorporated into Christ's family. And by grace, we all become the beloved sons and daughters that Christ is by nature. That's really good news, y'all. 
How do we even begin to grapple with the magnitude of the gift of baptism? St. Peter starts us on our way. Here's what he tells us. We have been put inside the ark of salvation in the church. Baptism is salvation. You think I'm joking? You think I'm overstating the case? Look what Peter says. He says, baptism now saves you. It is deliverance from the flood of sin, the flood of death, the flood of satanic attack and oppression. It is effective, Peter tells us, because Jesus has risen from the dead and conquered the world, the flesh, and the devil, so he can give us that gift. Now let me be clear. Baptism is not magic. Sacraments are not magic. If you don't want the presence of Jesus in your life, if you don't want the life that he's calling to you, calling you to in your baptism, then you're not going to get it. It won't be effective if you never do anything with it or refuse to become shaped by it. But if we will embrace it and cultivate the life that it calls us to, then the baptism that we have been freely given by the love of God is a gift of inestimable value. It is the eternal source of forgiveness and immeasurable spiritual power. It is objective in what it gives us. It is the grace of God operating upon our hearts through our bodies. It can change us because it's not our resources that we're working with. It's God's resources. Amen? That is good news. Do you need help believing that you're forgiven? Do you need help forgiving someone that has wronged you? Then hear the words of the psalmist from today about the forgiveness that is always available to us. Oh, remember not the sins and offenses of my youth, but according to your mercy, think on me, O Lord, in your goodness. Memorize these words. Inscribe them on your hearts. Remember the good news of your baptism because in it, the power of God for forgiveness is always available to you. Every time you turn to the Lord and you say, I repent, I'm sorry, I'm rethinking reality from the ground up around Jesus, God is already there before you because he's already come to you in this incredible gift of baptism. Okay, there's one final piece of good news that I want to talk to you about today in this Lenten call to repent. And that is that there is a real and genuine possibility of change in Jesus Christ. Remember that quote from John Climacus, repentance is the daughter of hope and the refusal to despair. If we sit with the reality that Christ's will for our salvation is unshakable, if we sit with the magnitude of the forgiveness that is available to us and the power of the gift that has been given to us in baptism, what gets generated in our hearts through that is hope. A hope that we do not have to be acquiesced. We do not have to despair of who we are right now. How many of you know who John Newton is? Show of hands. Okay, all right. Handful, but not everybody. John Newton was a slaver in 18th century England. But the King James Version of the scripture that Newton would have read would have called a man-stealer. He went around on slaving ships, enslaving men, women, and children in Sierra Leone, degrading the image of God in those human beings that God created in his image and who died, and who died to redeem them. And he degraded the image of God in himself. He hated himself, and he hated everyone else. He was a vile man pursuing a vile business. But Jesus found him, forgave him, gave him dignity, restored him, and made him a preacher and a pastor in an Anglican church in a small town in southeast England. And he became one of the Anglicans agitating for the abolition of the slave trade. Soon after the formation of the Society for Effecting the Abolition of the Slave Trade, Newton threw all of his weight behind it, and he supported it the rest of his life. 
He helped publish the eloquent abolitionist autobiography of the former slave, Alauda Equiano. Which, by the way, y'all, if, if you're going to read one abolitionist text from this time period, I highly recommend that one to you. It is powerful, and it changed people's opinions in England. And he himself published an influential abolitionist tract called Thoughts on the African Slave Trade. And then he published an autobiography in which he told millions of people how Jesus rescued him and helped him rethink his reality around Jesus Christ. And then he began the process by fits and starts to make restitution for the life that he had lived and the wickedness he had done, to repair not only the damage he had done himself, but to repair the damage that the slave trade had done across England. And in that repentant autobiography, he writes that it will always be a subject of humiliating reflection to me that I was once an active instrument in a business at which my heart now shudders. Entranced by the power of the gospel of Jesus, John Newton's heart was also filled with the most beautiful poetry, some of the most beautiful poetry that the world has ever seen. And he poured out hymn after hymn to help Christians throughout England and beyond to help put their trust in Jesus as their only hope for personal and societal transformation. There's one hymn that Newton wrote that you probably know. It goes like this. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. Was blind, but now I see. There is so much good news, church. Are you coming here under a cloud of anxiety? Is your heart troubled? Have you been waiting for years on an answer to prayer? Are you struggling with a besetting sin that has plagued you for your entire life? Are you starting to lose hope that the gospel is real or that God is listening? Here's what Lent, Lent is about. It is about putting aside everything that distracts us and weighs us down and numbs us out so that we can see what is true. We are not stuck. Listen to the testimony of John Newton, the slaver, the man-stealer, the oppressor. We are not so lost that we cannot be found. We are not so blind that we cannot be made to see. We are not incapable of change or of following Jesus. Lent reminds us that our lives are a quest. Our lives are a pilgrimage. And we are not alone on this quest. Christ promises to be with us until the end of the age. The Father pours out his love upon you. Jesus accompanies you. The Holy Spirit indwells you, encourages you, convicts you, exhorts you. More than that, though, you have a dignity and an honor that no one could ever take from you because you belong to God's family. And the Holy Trinity is committed to your salvation and your sanctification in a way that you could never be. In a sermon late in his life, Newton preached to his congregation, I am not what I ought to be. I am not what I want to be. I am not what I hope to be in another world, but still, I am not what I once used to be. And by the grace of God, I am what I am. Are you despairing on this first Sunday of Lent? Are you thinking that who you are is who you must be? Remember, although you are not who you should be, though you carry around all manner of besetting sins and secret sins, and although perhaps you fail today, perhaps you're failing right now as you're listening to me, you are not who you were. You are not the glorious being who you hope to be in the resurrection. But by the grace of God, you are who you are now. You are on the way. And there is hope because we have been filled with the Holy Spirit so that we can glorify the Lord Jesus Christ by repenting. As long as there is breath in our bodies, 
there is hope for repentance. Perhaps you are here today and you're despairing for someone that you love. Perhaps it's a friend who's deconstructed or has chosen a path that it seems like there is no way to walk back. Perhaps it's an adult child that you've raised in the faith and they've rejected it and you're watching them devoting their lives to unworthy things. Their stories are far from over. They are not in command of their destinies any more than we are in command of ours. The Holy Spirit has a divine appointment waiting for them. And so don't give up praying. Don't despair for them. Continue to fast for them and to pray for them and to hold them before the Father with eagerness and concern and say, Lord, you died for them. Save them. That's what I want you to remember this first Sunday in Lent. And if you want the hope that produces repentance to be restored in you, then I want to invite you to come to the Holy Eucharist. Receive the real and true presence of Jesus in this Holy Communion. Feed on Him in your hearts by faith and with thanksgiving. And receive this good news. Because church, on this first Sunday of Lent and on every day of this week, there is so much good news. Remember that and feed on that in your hearts by faith and with thanksgiving. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Son.